Welcome to 1951 Down Place, the home of Hammer Films discussion. Each month, our hosts, Casey, Derek and Scott, take a look at the film catalogue of the legendary Hammer Films production, one picture at a time. Covering everything from the famous Hammer gothic horror films to their science fiction films, their thrillers, their film noirs and comedies, this podcast will offer critical opinion, production notes and historical facts about the films that make Hammer great. Make yourself comfortable, have a cup of tea, and welcome to 1951 Down Place. Welcome everyone to 1951 Down Place, your home for Hammer Films discussion. I'm Scott, and my co-host and I are taking a look at the 1957 Hammer sci-fi classic Quatermass 2, or how it's known in the U.S., Enemy from Space. This film was a sequel to the 1955 film The Quatermass Experiment, which we talked about in our November 2012 episode. Several major players from the first film, both in front and behind the camera, return for the sequel. In front, we have Brian Donlevy, reprising his role as Professor Quatermass, who is the head of the British Experimental Rocket Group. Also featured in Quatermass 2 is John Longton, as Inspector Lomax. Longton had been a major star of British silent films and has also appeared in several early Alfred Hitchcock films. Now, the character of Lomax was in the first film, but then it was played by Jack Warner. Behind the camera and returning from the original Quatermass film, we have director Val Guest, producer Anthony Hines, and James Bernard writing the music for the film. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the film was known as Enemy from Space when it was released in the U.S. Now, this film was a landmark release for Hammer in the States because it was the first film they pre-sold distribution rights here to raise money for production, a model that they would use for many films that followed. Now we'll be back to look at Quatermass 2 right after a few messages from our sponsors. Are you a child of the 60s? Are you a fan of sci-fi films from the period? Are you reaching retirement? Then do I have news for you. A new retirement village is ready to meet your needs. Quatermass Estates. Quatermass Estates is a new retirement village designed for star kids looking for an independent living facility where their love of sci-fi can be expressed without the judgment of others. Here's the lead architect, Professor Quatermass, with an overview of the estate. Steel domes where men can live in artificial atmosphere, beings alive in a totally dead world, 50 rockets to take the components up their solar mirrors, producer units, pressure domes. Quatermass Estates. Quatermass Estates is located just up the Carlisle Road outside of Winterton Flats. We are offering tours of our model retirement units daily. There may be imitations, coincidence of shapes, but accept no substitutes. Quatermass Estates. Quatermass Estates. Note, the meals at the Quatermass Estates dining facilities have not been accredited for human consumption. Do you enjoy movies like Carnival of Souls, The Mole People, Black Sunday, and The Tingler? Do you find yourself late at night reading magazines such as Film Max, Chiller Theater, or Monster Bash? Do you love vintage television programs like Sky King, Outer Limits, and The Time Tunnel? Do you find yourself surfing the net looking for the next monster movie festival or expo? Do you enjoy hearing anecdotes, cinematic details, and unusual insights into some of your favorite movies? If you answered yes to any of the above, you are encouraged 
to join your host, Vince Rotolo, as he examines some of the latest horror, sci-fi, and cult theatrical releases, new DVDs to add to your collection, and of course, the old classics, both good and bad. He even interviews people throughout B-Moviedom. So tune in to B-MovieCast at bmoviecast.com. This is Victor Von Psychotron, host of Weirdorama, and you are listening to 1951 Downplace, the place for Hammer Film knowledge on the web. Right, they're coming down by the hundreds. Get Hall. Listen. Listen very carefully. If you ever hear a sound like this, run for your life. Run. Run before it is too late. For if you stay, you will lose your soul. Coming closer, closer, closer is an enemy from outer space. From out of this world it came, a horrifying terror that threatened mankind, haunting and possessing every human being within range, an indestructible danger beyond all earthly understanding. Vincent Broadhead is dead. Dead? I watched him die a few hours ago in that plant, his whole body covered with some kind of corrosive poisoning, eaten away. It poisoned everything it touched. The mind and the body of man was no longer in his control. They ran from this unknown menace, but there was no escape. We're holding this block. We've got to. At least until the oxygen takes effect. Watch in those doors, mister. Resistance must cease immediately. Yes, what is it? Tell us. Inside those domes are creatures from outside this earth. Are you mad? I've seen them. Thousands of tiny creatures that can join together and expand into things a hundred feet high. So for this month's episode of 1951 Down Place, he only gets Scott and I. Casey couldn't make it. He called in six, said something blew up in his face. He got a burn on his face, and he just he's not able to do the recording right now. So it's just going to be Scott and I this time around. How you doing, man? I'm doing good. Uh, luckily, none of those uh, falling little meteorites hit my area of Indiana. You know, it's odd because you and Casey actually live near each other. So you might want to start watching the skies, my friend. Yeah, yeah we're about 40 miles apart, but yeah, you're right. Excellent. So we are, you know, if you can't tell, if you haven't been listening to the beginning of the show, we are going to be talking about Enemy from Space, a.k.a. Quatermass 2. I think we'll call it Quatermass 2 for this discussion. Well, it is the proper name, the UK name of the film. Enemy from Space is the U.S. title of the film. Right, because Quatermass still didn't have a foothold in American pop culture. I don't know if it really even does now, but... You know, they had to change it to something that the Americans would enjoy. So, Enemy from Space. I like Quatermass 2. I like Quatermass 2 with the number 2 as opposed to the Roman numerals. Myself, I just think that looks cooler. Well, supposedly this is one of the first films that actually uses the number 2 to signify a sequel. Predating Godfather Part 2. Take that, Coppola. That's right. By, what, 17 <laughs> years? Exactly. Uh, this is also the first time and the only time the same actor would come back to reprise the role of Quatermass. We got Brian Dunleavy back. Your hero. Man, he's the man in this. What are you talking about? I, I know, I know. 
Quatermass in the pits, you're Quatermass. And I get that. And I'm sure Kira's awesome. But Brian Dunleavy gets it done. No nonsense, man. He's going to get things done no matter what it takes. Even if they cut his budget. So, yeah, this movie, I had seen bits and pieces of it. I had not sat down to see the whole thing front to back, start to finish, before watching it for this recording, for this podcast. Uh, but this is one of your favorites, right? Oh, yeah. uh, I'd seen this one several times, actually. This is my number five on my top five uh, Hammer films before we started the podcast. Um, I'd seen it many times. Uh, like I had said before, I was more of a sci-fi fan growing up than I was a monster movie fan. So this is uh, the Quatermass films were definitely on my radar from uh, a while back. This one, I would say, is definitely more sci-fi horror than the first one. This one is a lot darker than the Quatermass experiment. Oh, yeah. Definitely. When was the first time you saw this? Probably a late night viewing uh, when I was in high school, early high school probably. I don't know exact uh, time frame, but I'm sure because I did stay up a lot on uh, Friday and Saturday nights. And um, I had an old black and white television in my room and I would watch some of the older movies, monster movies or sci-fi movies, especially the sci-fi ones that uh, WTTV Channel 4 in Indiana would show. Welcome to WTTV Channel 4's Saturday Afternoon Movie. Yeah, I think a lot of people would have had to have, at least of our generation, would have had to have seen it that way, like on TV, late night TV, maybe something like that, because it's not easy to get your hands on. Now, it has been released on DVD in the UK. Yeah, you can get it over there, but it, it seems like when it comes to pushing Quatermass, Whoever owns the rights to Hammer's catalog, or at least that portion of the catalog, really pushed Quatermass in the pit. And I don't know if it's because that one's a better film, at least as far as you're concerned, if that one's in color versus the black and white and it sells better as color. It's unfortunate because I feel like the first two Quatermass, Brian Dunleavy, man, he's my man. I think it has a lot to do with the the first two not being in color, personally. I, I, I think all three of them are outstanding and great, and I think they would have done well over here. I'm at a loss of why you can't get them uh, on a DVD. I know it's legalese and all that kind of stuff, but I'm just surprised that it's not because I think it would do well. I think so, too. And I think given the era it's from, it's really fascinating. And I don't know, maybe, you know, as we're talking, this this is kind of helping me kind of formulate my thoughts on it. I wonder if maybe because of the era it's from and the location it's from, it's definitely British versus the American style of paranoia that we had at that time. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, because there's, there's definitely other movies that you're going to think of as you're watching this film. Keys into some of the same fears that you get from, like, Invasion of the Body Snatchers and things like that, which is, is flavored with the American paranoia. Whereas Quatermass 2, it's a British production, so it's got a different style or sense of paranoia. I don't know. It's too bad, though, because I think more people need to see Quatermass 2, because it's good. And, and as we said, it's darker than the first film. It's a lot more of a monster feel to it. I mean, yes, there was a monster in the first film, but this one is is a lot more. And it also has that great build-up before you see the monsters, because you just get 
little bits and pieces of what's going on, and, and you're trying to fit everything together just as Quatermass is trying to fit everything together. Which is, it's that part's really well done as well. Sure. Well, we were joking before we started recording that we would not want to work in Quatermass's lab unless our last name happened to be Quatermass, because uh, <laughs> it, it, your your job expectancy, let alone your life expectancy, probably isn't very high. <laughs> and definitely wouldn't want to get hungry. You don't know what kind of food you're going to get. No, not at all. The cafeteria there, I don't know. (laughs) Well, this movie went into production after the success of the first film, obviously. uh, But Quatermass, as we've talked about in the past, began on television. And Quatermass 2 was a TV serial first. But as that was being produced and put into the works, Hammer was already like soon another Quatermass. And... Plans began for Quatermass 2, and Nigel Neal came back for it. You know, he ended up, he did, obviously, the TV series Quatermass is his baby, his project. And he was involved in working on the screenplay for this film as well. He co-wrote it with director Val Guest. And up until this point, all the research that I've done on Quatermass and the Abominable Snowman, my impression was that Neal and Guest were kind of at odds. They worked together because they had to, is the impression that I've got. yeah. And it's odd because when I'm looking up things about this movie, while they both disagree completely regarding Dunleavy, oh. it doesn't seem like they really were as at odds as I had thought they were. Well, I think Nigel didn't like Dunleavy because Dunleavy also is famously known for having a, a drinking problem. You know, and that's the thing. Neil talks about how he was always drunk on set, but Guest says, yeah, he liked to drink his lunch, but... You tell him what to do, where to go, and he was on point. He might have been an alcoholic, but he was a functional one. That's right. In either of the first two films, I can't think of a time where, you know, I'm wondering if he's drinking at this point. That never thought never came to my mind. You know, there was a couple of times in Quatermass 2 that I did get that impression, that he had this look on his face, that maybe he wasn't quite getting it. But for me, I was kind of reconciling that with dealing with the unknown and sometimes maybe you just need to be a little drunk to deal with that (laughs) definitely probably would make it easier in this case yeah so it didn't take anything away from the performance for me uh the only story that i've ever heard about problems with dunleavy on set outside of needing to prompt him about what scene he's in is that the toupee that he wore got blown off his head at one point and they had to spend some time chasing it down because it was the last one but that's hardly his fault no but that so. definitely does make a fun mental image. That it does. <laughs> <laughs> Quite a mess. There's giant <laughs> monsters over there. They're feeding him ammonia. I don't care. Get me my hairpiece. <laughs> And then I just see, you know, a couple production assistants running across the field trying to catch it. Yep, yep. <laughs> With the Benny Hill music playing in the background. <laughs> <laughs> uh. One one other thing that I wanted to mention about the, the production that I was reading about that I mentioned in the intro is that this was uh, the first film that Hammer actually approached uh, some U.S. distributors in pre-production stages selling the, the rights to show it in the U.S. to raise money to help shoot the film. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's the first Hammer film to be pre-sold to a major American distributor. That was United Artists, right? Mm-hmm. Which is a... Um, a path that they're going to follow many, many, many times in the future. Oh, <laughs> certainly, yeah. I mean, this this kind of laid the groundwork for how Hammer was going to be financed through the rest of the 50s and 60s. Which leads today is why some of these films are and aren't released on DVD is because of which American company would, would work with them. 
uh, which is unfortunate for worldwide fans. It just makes things a little bit more uh, interesting to get your hands on some of these titles. Well, this movie had twice the budget of the first film, uh, a little more than twice the budget, which it shows. I mean, the first film, it's very contained. There are some scenes outside and things like that, but a lot of it is obviously in studio. Whereas this one, you're all over the place. Yes. The uh, Shell Oil Company allowed uh, the production company to come and film a lot of the scenes uh, on their uh, oil facility. And which I believe, didn't they shoot some of the TV show there as well? I believe so. It's been years and years since I've seen the TV show. I, I watched the movie many more times than I've watched the TV series. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, something else that returned from the TV show, a lot of the costumes for the quote-unquote zombies or workers, were also recycled from the TV show, which I thought was kind of neat. You know, you get a little touch of that. What are they doing to do with them anyway, you know, really, I suppose. But, you know, you save a little bit of extra money just bringing in the same costumes, right? Yeah, stuff's designed. Why recreate it? Exactly. So, you know, something else that this movie did first for Hammer, it's the first time Bernard Robinson was brought in. Uh, He did some of the production design in this movie. Now, in this movie, you don't get... The, the lavish set pieces that Bernard Robinson would create for the, the gothic films. A lot of the work had already been done anyway when he was brought in. But it's interesting to see that this is where Robinson became part of the mix. And he's undoubtedly part of the reason why we love the Frankensteins and the Draculas and things like that. So I thought that was kind of neat. Well, I would think the closest um, that he came to actually doing any any of the gothic work was probably the pump control room at the end of the film. You know, speaking of gothic, uh, and, and we'll talk about that pump control room, I have a quote here from The History of Horrors, The Rise and Falls of the House of Hammer. Dennis Meikle talks a little bit about the paranoia in what was going on at the time in the culture and that sort of thing. And there were these nuclear power plants starting to turn up and he calls them the gothic castles of the modern age. And it was fear of them that had given Neil his inspiration for a striking assault on the icons of the new establishment, nuclear power plants as gothic castle. And so that was an interesting illusion or comparison to make, especially at the time. I mean, these, these are things that are so new and obviously, you know, you start thinking nuclear atomic weapons, things like that. I mean, kind of scary, Yes, that that's true. So does this mean we have to call Vince Sir Vince since he's working in one of these castles? <laughs> Vince over at the B-Movie cast? <laughs> yes. <laughs> we should ask him about that. <laughs> uh, that control room, though, was pretty cool at the very end. Yeah, I love the scene in the control room. Yeah, right. which well, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. <laughs> but I thought that that is probably where it gets the most tense. That could have been shot at Bray. That was just like one room. Mm-hmm. And Hammer really excelled. Val Guest really excelled at taking these small locations and just pumping them full of tension and stress and excitement. It was a very well done scene. But like I said, it, you know, like we were talking about, this movie is huge. You're at the the Shell Oil place. You're all over. You know, you're in the different bars and the towns, and you're out on the roads. The movie starts on the road. The movie starts outside, and we. I mean, we almost have a car accident. I, I did want to ask you about the very beginning of the film with the car driving down the road. Did you think Night of the Living Dead at all? A little bit. <laughs> Definitely. It's got that kind of dark, creepy. Yes, you've got you've got a car, a desolate dirt road driving. You don't know where they're going. The music starts, the credits... I just had that quick vibe of, of the original uh, Night of the Living Dead there for a second. No, it definitely has visually 
the cues are there. Musically, the music of this is a lot more, well, big. Oh, Whereas yeah. the night is a lot more, you know, smothering and, and down. I I, I, lo- I love the music in this film. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, James Bernard. Yep. Uh, one thing I was going to mention real quick: uh, Val Guest's approach to the direction in this is a little different than what we got in the first film. And I was about to say that before you mentioned the Night of the Living Dead comparison, which is apt and definitely there, because Night is very documentary-like, which is what Guest tried to do in the first film, make it very documentary-like. I didn't get a documentary-like feel through a lot of this film. I felt this felt a little bit more straight. This, I mean, this, I still liked it. This was a lot more fluid. Yeah. The, the, the documentary is kind of, uh, it's broken up, it's very da-da-da-da-da-da, this, this, this. This was a lot more the scenes flowed a lot uh, freer from scene to scene. It feels more like a straight-up narrative, which is fine. It works for what it is, and I think probably works better for this story. Well, speaking of which, though, shall we talk about the story? We, we talked a little bit about the opening sure. with, with the car and, and Quatermass getting his pre-credit sequence a la James Bond. Hi, I mentioned <laughs> James Bond before you. The pre-credit sequence before the titles. Yep, uh, you've got a car um, that's being driven uh, down a dirt road. It's It's driving kind of fast there's a woman driving and we see shots of her and then there's a guy in the passenger seat with her who's obviously in some pain and he's got uh, we see what looks like a very severe burn on his face uh, obviously rushing him to get some medical attention and at one point she literally drives and almost hits um quatermass who had a four-way stop and both cars uh, skid off the road Quatermass jumps out of the car and, and runs over and um, sees the guy and starts, you know, his investigation mode automatically just clicks in right there and he's trying to figure out what's going on. Quatermass doesn't mess around. Nope, because he sees the burn, which is a, a style of burn he's never seen before. Uh, the woman is also carrying um, some rocks that are uh, wrapped up in some cloth that she says that these burned him and Quatermass picks them up like they're cool to the touch she's like these can't burn him and she said yes they did he immediately tries to to help and get the medical attention they kind of split off after they get the help they need Quatermass takes the rocks and uh, heads back to his uh, observatory where his rocket program is back to the Quatermass think tank (laughs) once we get there uh, or before we get there actually before Quatermass gets there uh, we meet uh, Brand his assistant, who um, is working and uh, noticing that there's a whole bunch of these falling objects on his radar screen. There's scores of them coming down. What are they? Meteorites? Meteorites give a strong trace as soon as they strike the atmosphere. These are different. What are they? Whatever they are, they're coming in low and slow. You still holding yours? Uh Uh-huh. As soon as one lot fades, there are more. Traces are getting fainter. Yours too? Yes, mine have gone. What do you make of it? And uh, they're not quite sure what it, what they are, and but they're guessing they're, what, about 90, 90 miles away from where this observatory is, falling at uh, Winterden Flats. And I, I did forget to say during the, the auto accident earlier, the, the woman said that they were going to have a picnic in Winterton Flats, but they couldn't find it. 
and that's where they, they found these rocks. Well, they should have just followed the falling rocks. Well, true. <laughs> Quatermass shows up, and first he, he just berates Brand. What's going on here? Oh, hello, Quatermass. Who reset that scanner? What's it doing at that low level? Well, we were making some tests, sir. This Suddenly... observatory, like everything else on this base, was built for one test only. I'll not see it used for any other purpose. We happen to pick up some rather curious echoes. I'm not interested in echoes, Brand. Neither am I interested in a skilled man like Marsh spending half the night on one of your pet projects. That's quite unfair. I wanted to stay, sir. You had no right to. In the morning, you may be half awake. Yeah. (laughs) And then he just, he tears into him and Marsh at the same time. We find out that he spent the day with financial people, obviously, or with some government financial area, because they're not going to give him any more money for his projects. And actually, it's told him to go back to school. Yeah, which I got a total <laughs> Ghostbusters 2 vibe here, you know? Quatermass saved the world. But, yeah, let's kind of just shuffle him off to obscurity now that his job is done, you know? Well, if you think back to the first film, yeah, he, he did save the world, but look at what he actually did. His rocket program failed. He launched without authority so why would you give any more money to somebody that did all that because he's brian dunlevy <laughs> but uh, yeah he basically berates the, the guys working in there because they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing plus they're staying too late and everything and at this point we also uh, learn that uh, he's been working on this moon project he's got this whole model of a moon base in his office where people can live and work on the moon and and mine resources and have rockets that'll take you back and forth between earth and the moon to transport the people and the materials. But all of that is now gone because there is no money anymore. And he actually starts the the ball rolling to, to go back to school to learn how, how rockets work. Basically. <laughs> I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want Quatermass as a student. No, <laughs> no, He's just sitting in the back row, you know, in the lecture hall, just sitting there, arms crossed in his trench coat, just scowling. Uh, No, I see him in the front row arguing every single point with the professor. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, during this whole thing, he does still have the the rocks that the the girl in the car gave him, and uh, he gives them to Marsh to look at, basically to try to figure out what's going on. And they kind of think, these sort of look like the things that we've been tracking that are falling about 90 miles from here. They then get curious in those, and Quatermass orders some studies of these things to try to figure out what they look like before they hit the ground. Then they all decide that uh, the next morning they need to go and visit Winterton Flats to find out uh, what's going on. And Quatermass takes Marsh with him, which I don't think I would want to go on a field trip <laughs> with Quatermass because I, I no, you know, it was black and white movie, but Marsh was wearing red, wasn't he? I, I think so. I think so. <laughs> So Marsh was played by Brian Forbes, who would appear in Yesterday's Enemy for Hammer as well. I don't think he did a lot of Hammer before or after those two films, however. Although he would continue to work up through the 80s at least. So They get in the car and they start heading out to Winterton Flats. And as they get close, they see these very unusual signs. Sort of look like government signs, but they've got a really unusual logo on them. And basically... No entry without special passes. You can't go past this point. <laughs> which is a, <laughs> which for somebody like Quatermass is like, oh, really? Yeah. Why? I'm going to go through and see what's going on. I mean, there's no guards or anything at, at, at this first point. The road's blocked, so they can't go. So they try to go around it. 
one of my favorite early scenes of the film is, you know, they get to this dead end, they get out of the car, and there's big signs, no admittance, don't go past this point type stuff. Marsh starts walking, and as soon as he steps off the road... Hey, wait a minute, don't walk on that stuff. What? It might be mined, anything. We'll go back and try the right fork. You game? Sure. I don't know what would be worse, you know, the road trip with Quatermass or the fact that you stopped in the middle of a minefield. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh. But uh, they decide that they were going to try a different fork in the road back, and as they're turning around, did you notice the uh, guards coming out of the forest there? From the very first time we see these guards in, in their gas mask outfit and all that, and that's creepy. Mm-hmm. And to see them just kind of oozing out. <laughs> yeah, because when they're yeah. looking out at the at the field there, there's a couple clumps of trees. There's nothing there. And as the car's t- doing a 180 to go back the other way, these guards come out from behind trees and stuff. And they and it literally, it's kind of a an oozing movement. They just kind of all just kind of show up. It's really kind of a creepy way that that scene is shot. Yeah, there's no question here. From the very beginning, from the first time we see them, there's no question that something's not quite right. Like I said, they get back in the car, they do the 180, they're heading back to another road around the uh, the initial roadblock, and all of a sudden Quatermass just slams on the brakes and pops out of the car looking down over what was uh, Winterton Flats. You see some broken up buildings in the foreground, but in the background you see what looks pretty much like the Moon Project base, that uh, model that we saw earlier in the film. Yeah, which I thought was kind of cool. You know, not only did they tell Quatermass to pound it, no, your moon project's dead, but now there's this element of, well, maybe they kind of use some of his technology, what some of his designs for what they're doing. He's immediately pissed. Uh, like, here's my project. They're stealing my project, and, and they're not giving me any money to, to do anything with it, but I, they obviously think it's good because they built it here. But as they're doing some investigation, they find a lot more of those rocks just kind of lying all around the place. And Marsh, he finds one that it hasn't broken yet. And uh, he picks it up in his hands, and as he's doing that, it kind of hisses and breaks. That's funny. I thought I felt a sort of... Put it down. A sort of vibration. (coughs) Marsh, your face! There was something on your face! Are you all right? Let me take a look. You know, for a moment... I could have sworn I saw something that looked like a big black bubble. And something attaches, you know, goes onto his cheek and gives him that big burn mark on his cheek. Can we talk about the burn mark real quick? Sure. I'm glad the movie was in black and white because I get the impression in color that would have looked really ridiculous. Yeah. Just the shading of it just doesn't look quite right. And as we see this mark throughout the rest of the film on other people, I mean, I hate to say it, but I felt like the makeup wasn't all that good. It wasn't. It didn't blend very well. It definitely looked like it was very obvious something that was attached to the skin. Right. And, you know, I mean, it's Phil Leakey doing the makeup. So, you know, he's normally spot on and, you know, we totally buy what he does. It just looked, I don't know, just didn't look as good to me as as we've seen him do in other works. And even some of the makeup that we see later in this movie. This was definitely one of the weaker parts of the entire film was, was the makeup. This happens. Marsh is attacked and he's, you know, on the ground. Quatermass is running over at the same time what sounds like air raid sirens are going off. Right. And uh, they're wondering, you know, is this for them? What's going on? And then a couple of trucks of those guards show up, all in their gas masks. You can't see anyone, any of their faces. They literally all look the same. And they 
go over, they take Marsh. Uh, Quatermass is trying to get answers of, you know, where are you taking him? What's going on? What is all this? And they basically, you know, they're telling him to get the hell out of there. And they rifle body him at one point. You know, it's interesting here because Quatermass was kind of pissed that Marsh and company were wasting company time and resources and all that. But there is a sense of concern for friendship. My friend, there's a concern for my friend here. Definitely, because he's going off after that. He's like, what's going on with my friend? Where are you taking him? What's going on? And, you know, the next few scenes in the film, I think he's more interested in trying to find out what happened to Marsh than really what's going on in in Witterton Flats. It really kind of humanizes him in this aspect here uh, because later on in the movie and in the first film, there's a lot of no nonsense, get it done. We got to save the world to what Quatermass is doing. But in this sequence here, I really felt like he was a human. He was a guy. He's just a guy and he wanted to make sure his buddy was okay. His buddy that works for him, he's on the payroll, but he wants to make sure his friends are right, which I thought was nice. It was a nice touch. The guards take Marsh. Quatermass then, you know, he, after he gets rifle butted, he climbs back in his car and um, then he, he drives a few miles and there's this town that's there that, kind of got a weird look to it it's sort of like a uh, a workers camp town there's a big project going on and they got a lot of workers to physically build it so they built this little prefabricated town for them to live in while the the work is being done is what right. is what you got here and uh quatermass asks a uh, person walking down the streets he asks her you know where's the police station well there's no police here because there's no need to the nearest police is you know 20 miles away and so they end up going to the the town center to talk to the leader there this the local camp committee quatermass meets the lead the you know the secretary but the secretary tells him the same thing he's like you know the people here they work in the town but no one's going to talk about it there's even a, a poster on the on the wall talk about your job lose it so no one's going to talk about what's going on over there they have no idea what's happened to his friend there's no uh, hospital or anything there Quatermass is just getting upset and upset and upset, and he finally wants to call the other police station, so he picks up the phone there in the community center, which at that time you get this look on the the leader's face like, "Uh uh-oh, this guy's really going to start making waves because you obviously get the impression that that phone is tapped. They're going to find out what he's calling about. Right, which plays up later. Yes. Uh, you know, the idea of getting on the phone and talking and you know, this whole we don't want to talk about things on the phone. We can't talk about our job or we're going to lose our job. I mean, that's that whole secretive smothering effect that you get with who can you trust, you know, and that's something that this movie really kind of plays on is, is who can you really trust? And I really liked that. So Quatermass not getting anything that he deems a satisfaction out of here. He finally he drives to contact the police and. The police there are they're not as tight lipped, but they're all they all tell him that the the plant's this top government secret thing and they can't help him. It's out of their jurisdiction, it's out of their control, it's the it's the government. We're not gonna help you. Basically they don't want anything to have anything to do with it. Which just infuriates him even more. Yeah. <laughs> he then leaves still upset, he goes back to to the observatory and uh, decides that he's gonna drive to London to figure out what's going on. And I love the scene when he first gets to London and he's in the traffic. He's, he stopped at a red light or something and then he sees a truck with the same government markings as the uh, the base 
in Woodard and Flats drive by. A truck, and it's, it's draped in that canvas. He can't really see. Yeah, so you don't know what it's carrying, but it's got, it's got the same logos of, of the place mm-hmm. that uh, he was run out of. Uh, once he's in London, he heads to Scotland Yard and um, meets up with uh, Inspector Lomax, who is another callback from the first film, even though it's played by a different actor this time. Yeah, I had to double check because I was like, Lomax, wait a minute. Yeah, in this film he's played by John Longdon. Uh, not the same guy from the first film, but it is supposed to be the same character. I kind of got the yes. impression, right? Yeah, it is the same same character. Uh, he tells this whole story, Quatermass does to Lomax, of what's going on, you know, what it, what's happened. And Lomax does know a little bit about what's going on. And he, he tells Quatermass that it's a, a secret project for the government to make synthetic food. I don't know, man. That's... <laughs> That, to me, that's a horrible cover story. I, I don't know if it's just because I, I don't trust <laughs> a lot of that Franken-food, that kind of thing, even now. <laughs> so, I remember the very first time I saw this film, my thought right then was uh, Soylent Green. Yeah, I was going to say, Soylent <laughs> Green! <laughs> you gotta tell him! <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he tells them they're making, uh, Lomax tells Quatermass they're making that synthetic food but of course, Quatermass, he doesn't buy it. He still doesn't believe that's what's going really going on there. And so at this point in the film, when I start noticing that maybe he has been drinking a little bit, but he's under a lot of stress. It's okay. Well, he's, he's you know, uh, the whole time when he's talking to Lomax and he's talking to, to the police in the, the small town and he's talking to the community leaders, every time it's not what's going on. He wants to know what's going on with Marsh. It, to call back to your point earlier about him being really concerned about his his employee, that's that's what he, his leading thing is. He wants to know what's going on with Marsh. Where is Marsh? Where yeah. is Marsh? And I think that's what finally tips Lomax into to helping him more than I think he wanted to by giving mm-hmm. him the name of uh, Vincent Broadhead, who is a member of Parliament. Right. And uh, Vincent has been fighting against this whole project since the beginning. He's been trying to figure out what's going on. He's done some research and found that, you know, at the beginning it was just a small little project. They weren't asking for a whole lot. But all of a sudden over the past couple of years, they've been asking for more and more money. It's been blowing up huge, uh, a lot of construction. Everybody that goes out to, to meet them to find out what's going on, to come back with the same story, everything is fine, don't worry about it, everything's good, give him more money. He's very skeptic about what's going on out there. Lomax thinks it's good that Quatermass meets with him because this guy, that that Broadhead, might be able to help him further. And uh, it turns out that uh, Broadhead had just gotten the approval to visit the plant on an inspection tour. After waiting, what, three months or whatever? All I ask, Mr. Broadhead, is to break through this wall of secrecy. Me too, Quatermass. But let me tell you this. There's a reason for this secrecy. Winneton Flats is a blunder. The biggest blunder there's been with public money. And they're trying to cover it up, even to the extent of armed guards arresting sick men. Ah, oh, that's a good point. I'll try and use that. Do we know it's synthetic food? Do we know what they're doing down there? I don't know anything. That's what I'm belly aching about. Oh, yes. For years, we've known that a group of scientists has been working down at Wendell Flats. But that was just a couple of tin huts and a pinhole in the budget. But suddenly, bingo, they've got it. They're asking for millions and getting them, too. When did all this start? About two years ago. 
Now there's a mad rush to get a production plant built. Tremendous, insane costs. And now I gather they're ready to go into production and beat the world. But they've got to prove that to Vinnie Broadhead. Because I've found out there's something wrong, Quatermass. Something very wrong. As Quatermass and Broadhead are talking, a representative from the plant shows up with uh, Broadhead's pass. And uh, Broadhead basically tells that, you know, says, can I bring somebody with me? And the, the guy says, what's his name? And he says, Professor Quatermass. And the, the guy gets a little bit of a smile and he says, yes, I think that can be arranged. <laughs> yeah, which <laughs> Broadhead's like, really? I had to wait three months and then, oh, well, I'm fine. Let's bring him along. You yeah. know, it's kind of, <laughs> yeah. It doesn't always take three months, you know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they board uh, a van or car uh, no it was a carpool a couple cars that take him out to the plant and we've noticed there's a couple other people that are there uh, for the tour and at the first chance they get uh quatermass happens to see the medical facility during and takes off from the tour he just just leaves them along with broadhead and to try to find marsh and they bust into the uh the infirmatory nobody's there in this um really short uh, and I, I mean not he's not height-wise, but just very to-the-point medical guys in there. We haven't had anybody in here. He says, what about Marsh? There is no Marsh. <laughs> there's nobody here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's, I mean, there's no patients at all in the, in the medical area. What do you want, please? Oh, we're an inspection party. You have no business here? Well, it's official. They, oh, they took our parts. Have you any patients here? There is no one. We thought a young man was brought in here yesterday by the guard. I think I'll take a look. Any sign? No, he was here. He must have been. Yesterday afternoon. His name was Marsh. No. Hey, what are all these beds for? You're evidently prepared for... Gentlemen! Quite a... Why have you left the inspection party? You mustn't do that. Come now, quickly. You know, they go, they further on the tour. Quatermass is asking about the domes, and they're like, that's, that's where we store the food. We'll get to that. Well, everything that you need to be shown will be shown. <laughs> I like the fact they said, everything that you need to be shown. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so they start going through, um, looking around, and at some point during that, Broadhead, he leaves the group. And you don't notice that he's gone right away. And they get into this one area where they're, they've entered the outer part of one of the big domes, and they're looking way down. They're way up, and there's like a 60, 70-foot drop to where there's more of those guards down there with the, with the creepy masks on. Right. That's when they realize that Broadhead is gone, the leader of the tour does, and he goes over to start closing this large metal door. And Quatermass, then he, he realizes that he thinks that something bad's going on. He's got to get out of there because he's got to find out what happened to Broadhead. Right. Plus, I think he senses that this is some sort of trap. You know, it goes from this very controlled kind of PR style tour. For whatever reason, I was thinking of the movie War Games. I don't know, you know, <laughs> when, when Matthew Broderick's character gets on the tour to whatever. To these people have just been brought in here to silence them, and that's why Quatermass was accepted into the tour at the last minute because oh, Quatermass, well, we'll get him too. Yes, ah, you know, what's going on down there? It's part of the process. Now, please don't wait here. We must keep going. Where's the other man? The other man? 
Broadhead. I didn't see him come in. Now, please don't worry. He'll be found and everything will be in order. It all looks most efficient. What are you doing? Sending a search party? What's this? A safety precaution. The guy starts closing this large metal door and there's a little bit of a scuffle and Quatermass actually escapes through the door before it closes. It is one of the slowest closing doors in the history of mankind, but <laughs> he does get out of there. Yeah. <laughs> and I do like that as soon as Quatermass is gone, the leader of the tour walks over to one of the uh, women that's being shown. Oh, it'll be okay. You come with me, but I don't want to go down. Oh, you need to go down here. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> So Quatermass, the next thing he's he's running through the the plant, and you know you see all the the conduit and everything. It's just this very creepy. What is design? Is this what what's going on here? Set that he's running. It's not really a set. It's the you know the the oil plant that he's running through. But you know you're wondering what what is all this? What are all these things? And uh, he comes across this giant circular dome, and he hears a scream come from the top of it. And he looks up, and there's Broadhead. But Broadhead's covered in what looks like chocolate pudding when you first see him. But he's obviously in tons of pain. And he starts making his way down the the curved stairs down the side of this circular storage facility. And as soon as he gets close to Quatermass, he's yelling, Don't touch me! Don't touch me! It burns! Don't touch me! And uh, he ends up just pretty much dying right there in front of Quatermass. Yeah, and this, you called it chocolate pudding, but I liked the visual here. Oh, I did too. I think his makeup was really good. Oh, I thought, you know, it was like maybe tar. He's like, you don't know what it is, but just mm. when you see it from a distance, you know, it's like chocolate pudding, but it's it's not, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you can't tell. You said it was really this dark, goopy kind of thing. Is it a burn? Is it blood? Did he get something on him from the thing? I mean, we later learned that it's this horribly toxic substance that Quatermass had to cut out of his jacket when he got it on his jacket. But uh, it, it just looks good when he's coming down the stairs and his hands leaving that smear behind as he's trying to hold himself up on the wall. There is one shot, and I think it's right after the character dies, where the camera reveals that there might not be complete makeup coverage on the character's neck. Yes. You know, and, and so that makes me think maybe he's not burnt himself, but he's just covered in goop. I don't know. But I did like the visual there and the way they shot it with him coming down the stairs. That was creepy. That was effective. Yeah, the, the, the smears down the side plus the way he was coming down the stairs. I don't know if you kind of noticed that. It was sort of half coming down like a normal person, half kind of just sliding down the stairs. Yeah. Exactly. It was just if if he wasn't able to hold himself up by pressing against the wall or whatever, he would have just fallen. Yeah. I mean, he was on his way down. But uh, as you said, Quatermass did get a little bit of, of it on his jacket. As soon as the, the body dies, the, more of the guards are starting to show up. And uh, Quatermass basically just runs and runs out of the, the plant. And, uh, you know, he, he kind of takes off leaving there. Now, I think this is where we get one of the most effective shots in this movie is, is Quatermass running toward the camera with the dome behind him. Is that yes. right about here? Yes. Really good and creepy and just really highlights or it further illustrates that it's Quatermass versus 
everything, and he's completely on. He can't trust him. He's alone here. Yes. He's still not quite 100% sure what's going on here, but he makes his way back to London. He cuts off a part of his jacket, gets back in with Lomax, tells him, you know, get this stuff to the lab. We need to figure out what this is. He tells Lomax that we need to we need to get more help in here. Mm-hmm. And this is one of my favorite scenes is when Lomax goes and talks to his supervisor. Oh, yes. <laughs> come in, Lomax. I'm sorry to bother you, sir. Something's come up that I'm not sure how to handle. Sit down, tell me about it. It's, it's difficult to know where to begin, sir. The implications are so far-reaching, if there's anything in them, that it's a matter of top policy. Yes? Well, sir, it concerns... It concerns... Concerns... The Ormond case, sir. The man we are holding. I thought if... uh, If we turned him loose, he might lead us to something. I mean, uh, give us a lead to accomplices, and I... Wondered if you had any views on the subject, sir. And he's about to start telling the whole thing when he notices on his boss's arm that same burn mark that's been described to him by Quatermass. Right. And in this particular case, I think this looked good. I think this burn mark looked good. Yeah, he, the Lomax still hasn't seen it for himself on anybody. This is the first time he's seen it. Uh-huh. But he's known enough, and he trusts Quatermass enough that he immediately changes his story about what he he came to talk to this guy about, right? And walks, you know, after he's done there, he he walks back in with Quatermass, says, "Describe the the burn mark that you've seen." Uh-huh. And basically, Qua- the Quatermass describes exactly what the, the burn mark that's on Lomax's boss. I think that's the first scene th- that I can really think of uh, in the film where you're like, whatever's going on is not just at the plant. It's outside the plant. It's it's really up into the higher echelons. You know, They're controlling everybody they need to control. We get this point illustrated when Quatermass is running towards the camera in the dome in the background, but now that Lomax has seen this, and like you said, it's an effective scene, now it's really, who do you trust? Mm-hmm. And the themes, invasion of the body snatchers and things like that become very evident in this movie as well. And that's when it's on. It's no longer what happened to my friend Marsh. It's what's going on, and we got to stop it. You got to tell them. <laughs> they then get the report, you know, but a little bit later of the scientific report of the sludge that was on um, Broadhead. Right. Basically, can kill anything is the report that Quatermass gets. There's nothing would survive contact with this. Exactly. Not even his trench coat. That's like right. we said he had to cut a cut a swatch out of it. Too. It's like, why don't you just get a different coat, man? I, whatever. <laughs> so Lomax gets the idea that, uh, well, we can't trust the authorities in this matter. How about we go public? Let's go to the press. And <laughs> <laughs> Enter Jimmy Hall, <laughs> ace crime reporter. Drunk. <laughs> hey, General. Jimmy, what do you want? One and a half color. Not now, Jimmy. I'm Quite Lomax, the rocket man. <laughs> I love the line. Jimmy. Lomax, that man is in no condition. The drunk Jimmy Hall is clever. Sober, he's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's Sid James playing that character. And he runs the risk of stealing every scene he's in just because he's that kind of funny drunk. I'm like, oh, yeah, let me write that down. You know, kind of, man. <laughs> 
You know, and he was in the uh, Carry On series, which I think is what he's probably most known for. But uh, he's <laughs> he's part of the team now. He's part of the team because they Quatermass is. I, I'm not sure he totally bought off going to the to the press, but I don't think he had much choice. They take the reporter Jimmy Hall back to Quatermass's um, laboratory, <laughs> tell him everything that's going on, show him the the models of the moon base, show him the meteorites that they have and they also had created a model of what one would look like before it hit the ground which seemed to be a stretch to me like how they could pull that off but you know whatever (laughs) they show him all the evidence that they've got but jimmy hall doesn't quite believe it yet he wants to go to the to the small workers town and talk to some of them to to find out what's going on so in an odd twist of fate even though we did not plan this, being March having um, St. Patrick's Day in it, <laughs> they get to the little workers town and they're having a St. Patrick's Day party. <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> So we spend a few minutes watching people dance and doing the jig. You know, <laughs> that's right, that's right. This is where we get to finally get our our. Uh, I guess almost only female presence in this thing, right? Is, is there anybody? Are there any other, I guess there's a secretary. There's Quatermass, the secretary that has yeah. to get coffee several times. Jeez, yeah, right. Uh, but that's a very day she turns up. She's the barmaid, and she she uh, shows up the, one of the customers who's doing a little dance, and like, yeah, you know, I'll do my thing, and yeah. That's not a jig. I'll show you what a jig looks like. Yeah, I know, right? It almost felt like it was she was shoehorned in as I mean, it didn't need to be a woman. No. It really didn't need to be a female, but you know, there wasn't really a strong Well, I guess there was a woman in the first Quatermass too, but she was kind of relegated to that. She was role the wife. Chosen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I-, I wanted to bring that up because well, I'll, I'll interrupt you again when you get to it. Go ahead. <laughs> Quatermass, uh, Lomax, and uh, Jimmy Hall, ace reporter, come into the community center where this party's going on. And <laughs> now, he sobered up when he got to Quatermass's yes. lab, but then they immediately go to a bar. Yes. I, I don't know if that's a good idea, <laughs> but whatever. Quatermass and Lomax, are, are they, they stop the party. Lomax jumps up on stage and says, you know, I'm, I'm the police. You need to listen to the scientists. You guys are all in, in grave danger of what's going on on the plant and of course, the people there, they still don't want to talk too much about the plant. Plus, they think that it's making food as well. And Quatermass starts talking about you know, all the things you know, that they found and all the evidence that they've got and this black tar pudding type stuff that's going to eat the world. They still don't quite believe them because you know, it's their plant. They worked on it and everything. As the argument starts to happen, one of the projectiles, meteorites, crashes through <laughs> the roof through the stage and lands in you know just under the stage. Q meteorite. meteorite. <laughs> yeah. At this point, you know, Quatermass is you know they're everybody out. This is dangerous, and they're like, oh no, what do they call them? An overshoot. It's just an overshoot. We get them all the time. Don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, Quatermass knows what they can really happen, and so he's he's trying to get everybody out of them. At the same time, the barmaid kind of sneaks up behind him, jumps up on the stage, and picks up the projectile. It's like, it's just an overshoot. There's no problems with it. And I love the scene as Lomax and Quatermass freeze. Put it down as slowly as you can. Oh, it's only an overshot. Like 
like Patty said. On the floor. Put it on the floor. That's the scary Quatermass right there. Yes. <laughs> Put it down. Yeah, I liked that. That was that was a tense scene. Of course, the thing starts to hiss, and the little creature thing comes out and attacks the barmaid. So that's what I wanted to talk about that real quick. Um, she makes it clear in the book Hammer Glamour that it was her idea that she get the burn on her chest as opposed to her face or anywhere else. Let's see. I refused to have the mark on my face. I told them it would spoil my looks. So I had it on my chest instead, she said. I didn't have a problem with it having there myself. but that's <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, she goes out of her way to say that, but I'm thinking, this is Hammer. Yeah. <laughs> They're going to show you. We're going to draw even more attention to this area. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But then, of course, her being attacked kind of riles up the crowd, including the, the drunk that was doing the jig earlier. He sort of becomes the de facto head of the, the group there. And they, they're all pissed. Of, you know, what's going on? What's going on? They get to this big argument, and then our ace reporter, Jimmy Hall, kind of sneaks off behind the bar and picks up the telephone, starts making a call. Uh, Quatermass and Lomax starts getting people out of the bar. They actually get out when you see, you hear sirens, and you see some of the, the folks from the plant, the, the guards or the zombies, as they call them, uh, show up. Quatermass is like, you know, where's Jimmy Hall? And Lomax is like, well, he's inside calling in the, his report. He's not calling in from that phone, is he? So we go in. You know, the, the guards go in. Jimmy Hall kind of ducks down behind the bar. The, the guards are there at first because of the barmaid being attacked. They basically want to get her out of there. They don't really know that Jimmy Hall is behind the bar until they kind of overhear him and overhear what he's calling into, calling and what he's saying. And they basically, there's like three of them just kind of open fire with machine guns on him. Contact with these things produces a violent infection, sort of sting. I've just seen it happen. Stay on the line. I think I've been spotted. Get this quickly. This infection is widespread. Yeah, and this is where it gets real. Yeah, I mean, I know we've already lost Marsh and, and, you know, what's going on with Vera Day's character, but this is where it gets real. It's now we're shooting people in cold blood in front of everybody else. Poor Jimmy Hall. (laughs) Which I'm sure he bled out more alcohol than blood. (laughs) (laughs) He died where he would have preferred to have lived, I suppose, in the bar. (laughs) Yeah, behind the bar. But yeah, yeah he, was, he was trying to make a call into the newspaper telling him what's going on, and they just, they just leveled him and just didn't give him a chance. Uh, Quatermass and Lomax then hear, you know, they see this through the window. They jump in the, the Quatermass mobile, go screaming off. The guards come out, and they shoot at them, but uh, they're, they're heading back to the plant. And um, Quatermass and Lomax are talking, and they come up across a roadblock. That Quatermass doesn't see and just level of guard. Look out! What'd you think of him running over that guy? I wasn't expecting it. No, I wasn't either. I was like, wow, okay, <laughs> it's it's now really real. And it's it's, it's actually, you know, for the, for the time frame, it's really well done. <laughs> yeah, no, and they didn't make a big deal out of it, which I'm glad. Yeah. It just happened. <laughs> wow. And Quatermass actually kind of like seizes the opportunity because he's like, okay, now I've got a way to sneak into the plan. I'm going to steal this 
guy's clothes and mask yep. and everything. Yep. And he tells Lomax, he said, uh, you need to go back to London and get the people that you trust. And you've got to come back out here and we got to put a stop to all this. So they kind of split up at this point because Quatermass notices there's a bunch of these guards that are out uh, mining these meteorites that have fallen. And they've also got these giant tanks that they're uh, bring that they're filling up with the stuff from the meteorites, obviously to take them back to the to the plant. So he infiltrates since he's now dressed as them. He infiltrates in with them. He tells Lomax to go back to London. So Lomax gets back in the car, turns around and leaves. And uh, as he's driving a little ways away, he runs into an angry mob with pitchforks, and it's the the people from the bar earlier who are upset because their barmaid's been taken and the the reporter's been killed. And they've had enough, and they're going to go march on the on the plant. And these are the guys that built the plant. Basically. Yeah, and you know we didn't mention this earlier, but in the bar is my man Michael Ripper. Yep. So you know he's one of the guys who's going to go to the plant as well. So this angry mob starts heading to the plant, uh, stops Lomax, basically steal his car. We've got Quatermass infiltrating the plant. How much farther are we going to go? We got to talk about what happens in the lab, man, in the in the control room. How they, you know, what happens when we just got to because it's pretty gruesome. <laughs> so we got Quatermass. Uh, we follow him for a little while, and he's going into the to the plant with the um, the trucks carrying these big tanks. He follows them down. Uh, we were back on the set earlier that the um, the tour was on with the the high overlook, but now they're down at the bottom, and they're taking these canisters and they're p- putting them through holes in the wall. Uh-huh. Uh, Mass is looking around and he's trying to figure out what's going on. And uh, once one of the, the tubes or tanks have been released, he sticks his head in to see what's in inside. And this is our first look at the monster or one of the monsters, kind of a bubbling mass of tar looking stuff, which reminded me, Especially the way it moved. You got to say it, man. We were talking about it before we were recording. You got to say it. <laughs> the garbage heap from Fraggle Rock. And I know what this Fraggle has. Well, of course you do. You're all knowing. I know that. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it didn't break out into song or, no, or no, just any the, kind of life lessons, but the way it moved, the you're way it absolutely moved. right. Yeah. <laughs> and I love Quatermass's expression. When he sees it, this is the, oh, hell no, kind of, <laughs> I really need a drink moment, because he's yes. got this look on his face that's just, it's priceless. Don Levy for the win. Oh, yeah. He, that was the first impression that I got that he was scared. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was all matter of fact. He was still, it's like, okay, this is this, this is this. I know what's going on here, everything. But now I know, you know, we're fucked. There's, this is, this is scary. <laughs> <laughs> said the disney podcaster yeah exactly yeah now there is one one other part that we forgot to mention before quatermass and lomax and them went back to where the the party was going on quatermass did talk to um brand because they were back at his his lab and they found out that these meteorites were coming from a larger celestial body that was on the dark side of the earth the dark side of the earth yes <laughs> and it gets mentioned a couple of times the dark side of the earth i is that just 
where it happens to be nighttime. I, I don't know what the dark side of the Earth that's is. That's what I'm thinking. I mean, there's always a part of the Earth that's away from the sun, and this thing is just staying in that part, so it's never never casts a shadow on the Earth or anything, I guess. Yeah. Basically, Quatermass tells, you know, he talks to Bran and says, you know, we need to figure out a way to destroy that. So, you know, we're back now. Quatermass has seen the, the, the living garbage heap. <laughs> Scared shitless. I mean, it just you could just tell he grasps how bad this is at this point. Just at the, as uh, a couple of the guards kind of see what Quatermass is doing, they're about to really the question of what's going on. All the alarms go off in the place. Uh-huh. And we've got that angry mob earlier is, is approaching one of the gates, which was a lucky break for Quatermass. <laughs> yeah, that's true. The mob, you know, we were taken to them. They're basically ordered to start shooting the people, and there's a, a fight that breaks out. The mob quickly overruns the, the gate, taking some of the weapons from the fallen guards. And now we've got a full-on assault happening from all these townspeople running through. You know, Guards are shooting at them, everything. Uh, we get a group of the townsfolk meet up with Quatermass in the pump control room. And the reason, right. reason we know it's the pump control room is we've got the guy from the bar that had been doing the jig that was drunk. This is where he worked. He, he had helped build the pump control room, so he knew what this place was. Uh, they barricade themselves in there. They kill a couple of guards that are in there. They find a cache of um, weapons. Uh, they also break out a window so they can overlook of what's going on on the outside. And uh, they start looking around at the pump control room, and Quatermass realizes that they've been feeding them the, the atmosphere of wherever their world is into those domes so they can live. He's making a guess that oxygen is poisonous to them. Well, he said that earlier in the film. Imagine a world in which oxygen doesn't... Yes. And he mentions that earlier, and it, and it seemed like a, a jump to me, but then it is Quatermass. Mm-hmm. So. But he's still, you, you tell he's still not quite sure that it's going to work, but he, they, they change all of the dials over and everything to pump oxygen into the domes. Right. And of course, you know, one of the townsfolk says, well, how long is it going to take? Is it, it may take an hour, it may take eight hours, I just don't know. Right. Now, the reason I wanted to get to this point, and we don't want to you know, give the ultimate salute, you know, ending away here. I mean, I think most people have already seen it if you're listening to, to the show. But what happens when some people go out to go meet with the aliens? Yes, we have, you know, or, or zombies or whatever. <laughs> There's a, a speaker in the room that uh, the, the people on the outside can talk. And, and, you know, they're basically telling, you know, you've been fed misinformation. Nothing bad's going on here. You know, we'll show you what you need to see. And a couple of the townsfolks at this point, I think, are, they don't want to be killed. They're, they're worried about what's going on. They're take up the zombies offer. They want to see what's going on for themselves. You know, can we see what's going on inside the dome? Yes, you'll be shown what's going on. So a small handful, like four or five of them, and maybe it wasn't even that many. There's just a couple, yeah. A couple of them. They leave. And uh, you see the, the, the people that remained in the pump control room. They go up, and they're looking out the window. And there's this great shot. You see the dome in, uh, at the end of this long path, and you see the people walking down. It, I just thought that was a, it was a really cool shot. And they're all speculating, you know, what's going on? What are they gonna, what's going to happen and everything? And they disappear. And a, and a couple minutes later, one of the pipes in the pump control room that uh, is leading to uh, dome number three it cracks, and they go and look at the pressures building. It's you know, what's going on, and there's 
guy standing underneath where it's cracking and Michael Ripper. Michael Ripper and blood starts to drip on him. Human blood. <laughs> what? Quatermass then realizes the aliens are using the bodies of the people that just went out there to stuff them in the pipe to keep the oxygen out. Oh, man. That's <laughs> that's awful. Yes. I'm giggling, but it's awful. So that's, you know, they're trying, the, the aliens are trying to save themselves, trying to keep, instead of controlling them or anything else, they're just taking the bodies and shoving them in these little small pipes to keep the oxygen out. Now, despite that gruesome image that we never need, I mean, we really don't need to see more than what we saw because it was pretty gruesome. Despite that, in Little Shop of Horrors magazine, issue number seven, Bruce G. Hallenbeck and John McCarty, when talking about this film, <laughs> say, let's see, let me find it. The film and TV play end on a hopeful note, <laughs> which seems to come out of nowhere. <laughs> What? No, that's not hopeful. I mean, I ultimately, the good guys win, whatever, and, and we don't necessarily need to get into too many more details about that, but it's not hopeful. I, I don't find this hopeful at all. And the very f- the final lines of the movie are not, oh, no. No, it's not. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the aliens that are here are now dispatched, but where did they come from? And you know, are they going to send more? You just, you don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and these, these aliens are bastards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are. No. And, and they were, they were a bear to get rid of. I mean, at least they know how to deal with it now, but I don't know. It's, it's pretty grim and pretty bleak at the end. And, you know, like we were joking about at the beginning, working for Quatermass. Mm-mm. I mean, Quatermass went through a lot of staff on this one. <laughs> Not even with just Marsh, but stuff that his lab goes wrong and just, man, it's a yeah. mess. But it's a really good movie. Oh, it's it's an excellent movie. You know, we talked a little bit about Invasion of the Body Snatchers kind of playing in the same territory. I actually find this one scarier than Invasion of the Body Snatchers because in this one, by the time the movie starts, the invasion has pretty much taken place. I mean, it's it's on. Oh, yeah. It, they're pretty much in control. Whereas in uh, Body Snatchers, it's it's about them taking control. So I, I feel like Quatermass, it's it's already <laughs> they've already succeeded the first part. You know, now it's just a matter of dealing with that pesky Quatermass. Well, you're definitely watching the whole world through Quatermass's eyes, yeah. and you're only told in the film as much as he knows. So you're really discovering the scope of the invasion, the scope of what's going on at the plant as he discovers it. You're not given any, you know, in a lot of movies, they may give you a couple things that the main character doesn't know. Not in this film. You learn it as he learns it. Exactly. Which is really well done. We talked about the bleakness of this movie feeling a little bit more fluid. It's not quite as documentary-like, and I think that works in this case. With the documentary style of the first Quatermass, a lot of it is very matter-of-fact. This one, we really get a chance to dive into some very effective cinematography. It's dark. It's grim. It's oppressive. You know, it feels a lot more narrative, and I think the cinematography in this one is, you know, just adds to that level of horror that kind of weaves itself into this narrative here. I mean, Hammer's already starting to dabble in the dark material anyway. You know, we are about to go to the Frankenstein cycle after this. 
But you can kind of see in this film that they were not afraid to address some of these horror elements and have some of that in their movies. Uh, you know, we talked about the bodies being used to block the pipes, you know, the zombies are calling them the, the soldiers in the gas mask. I mean, that's a scary image. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it was actually shot. I'd have to double check, but I do remember coming across some material indicating that there was a scene in which those zombies gunned down a family. At one point, that didn't make it into the film. Either they didn't shoot it or they shot it and it wasn't included in the final product because the ratings board was not going to have it and they weren't going to play up the X certificate that much this time. Uh, I mean, that's scary. I mean, that's like right out of the crazies or something like that, you know? Yes. Obviously, the zombies or the guards are people that the aliens are controlling uh, because they do have the marks on them as well. Yeah. I mean, because you even see at the end of the the film – they they have one of the guards uh, captured, and he actually comes out of it and doesn't know anything of where he's at or anything. They were total control. Uh, uh-huh. They were totally just no nonsense. You know, you you cross or you you're anything doing anything that's against whatever their goal is. They'll just like the the newspaper reporter. They're just going to gun you down. Yep. Yep. Uh, you know, to go back to the the book by Dennis Meikle, he compares the threat in this movie to fascism, which was definitely something. I mean, we're talking mid to late 50s. Oh, yeah. You know, Cold War stuff, you know, all of that. And one of the things that's mentioned in the commentary track by Nigel Neal and Val Guest on one of the DVD releases is that in England, these radar towers were popping up across the, the, the horizon and nobody was talking about them. I mean, they were government, right? So they're okay, right? I mean, we're supposed to trust that they're there to keep, you know, to protect us and keep us aware of what's happening. But you just didn't talk about it, which goes back to the signs that we see in town. Talk about your job, lose your job. Yeah. Well, it's all you know, the whole uh, Winterton Flats complex that's being built. Nobody really talks about it. It's you know, that's government. It's it's okay. Right. So definitely, this this blanket of just. Fear and assimilation and all that. It's a, it's an effective film, and it's your number five. It's my number five, yes. I wouldn't change my top five, but it definitely is one I'm going to go back to watching again. I really enjoyed it. There are a couple moments where I felt like, really? When we see the monsters at the very end of the film, I understand what they were going for. Mm-hmm. I get it. So I'm not faulting them for that. But as somebody who spent a lot of time last year watching a lot of Godzilla movies, I don't know. I had a, I had a hard time taking some of the final shots as serious as I probably wanted to or should have without thinking about Godzilla versus Hedra or Godzilla versus a smog monster. And I'm just going to leave it at that. You know, obviously the, the scenes there at the end is where Dunleavy lost his uh, toupee. Well, that's true, too. <laughs> <laughs> No, I really liked the movie. I'm glad we did it, man. Uh, like I said, this was my number five. Uh, I'd seen it many times. I know it's a difficult one to try to track down, but uh, it's well worth the effort to finding it because it is a very well done film. It's um, there's very few scenes like you know a lot of movies that I watch, even the ones that I really like. You can always go back and say, well, you know, you could cut this or you cut that. There's there's very little that I would probably take out of this film. Yeah, I agree. And even today, I mean, to go back to that article in Little Shop of Horrors magazine, it is curious that Quatermass 2 is so little seen today when its message is more timely than ever. 
Now, this was an issue that was released in 1982, and they continue to say, after the Watergate scandal, Americans have been hard-pressed to trust anyone in government. And in recent years, the quote-unquote enemy, in fact, has proven to be not the commies, but our own governmental agencies, the FBI, the CIA, etc. So, I mean, there's definitely I mean, some relevance here still, not that we're going to get overly political here, but I mean, there's some relevance to this story that I think holds up. Oh, uh, definitely. I mean, you, you, even in today, you've got you know people that think some of the terrorist stuff might have been un, not really done by people in the Middle East. Right. Yeah, you I can mean, totally revisit this story with that with that approach. Yep. I don't know. Well, and even now with needing food, overpopulation, yep. you know, hunger. I'm not advocating a remake of Quatermass Two, but. Just watch I'm the original. In, yeah, exactly. I am curious as to hear what Casey might think about the movie, where it would fit on his list if he'd put it in his top five. But, you know, he's got that burn on his face, and I just don't trust him. Uh, that's true, too. Yeah. He should get that looked at. Maybe uh, maybe Dr. Frankenstein could take a look at it for him. So there we go, which was the next big boom for Hammer. Uh, you know, Hammer was already starting to think about Frankenstein when this was in the works, so... You mean it took us this long to get to Peter Cushing? I know, right? <laughs> Over an hour in. That's how good Quatermass 2 is. <laughs> I don't want to say Quatermass 2 doesn't need Peter Cushing because I think we all need a little Peter Cushing in our life, but... It's it's one of the Hammer films that need it the least. There you go. Well, it did have Michael River. True. It did have Michael River. So. <laughs> Well, we'd love to hear what you guys think about Quatermass 2. Maybe send in some feedback like some of our listeners have regarding some previous films that we've covered. You want to get into that? Sure. All right, cool. We're going to go back in time to a couple of episodes ago when we talked about The Brides of Dracula when we heard from Barry. Hi, guys. This is Barry, and I run the funny little website, bmj2k.com, but I've been listening to 1951 Downplays from day one. And I thought I knew these films fairly well, but you guys have really expanded my Hammer Horizons, and I've learned something, more than just something, in every single podcast. I've enjoyed every one of them. I want to chime in on last week's discussion during the pretty badly misnamed Brides of Dracula about the non-traditional crosses. I'm a fan of those. I love when Cushing did the thing with the two candlesticks and the windmill and when crosses make shadows. I think all of that is great. But I don't really believe that it's really just the cross that stops all these vampires. Belief in vampires goes back to well before Christianity, well before the cross would have meant anything to anyone. So it's not really the cross. And it comes up in a lot of places. It's the belief behind the cross. It's the power of the faith in the higher being that the cross represents. That's why a Jew can stop a vampire with the Star of David, for example. And it also brings us to that great scene that was in Stephen King's Salem's Lot, when Barlow the Vampire just reaches out and crushes the cross that the priest is holding up to him. This priest has lost his faith. He didn't believe in religion. He didn't believe in God. And the vampire just pretty much sneered at the cross, crushed it, and threw it away. So it's not always going to be just the cross. It's got to be somebody who believes in it. There's a really good Fred Saberhagen short story that I read a long time ago. A vampire visited this very preppy, upscale couple, sort of like your 1980s Wall Street types. And he actually told him he was coming. He knocked on the door. He introduced himself, and they knew he was a vampire. 
And they started, like, waving crosses at him, and the vampire laughed. They didn't believe in any of that. He just laughed at the cross. They had a Jewish star. It didn't do anything. These yuppie types got so terrified that they just started thrusting money at the vampire, trying to pay him off to go away. And they're waving $100 bills at him. That worked. And the vampire recoiled from the money and left because money was the one thing they believed in. Their faith in a higher power, their belief was in the money. And that's why the symbol worked. So the cross is good and all these non-traditional things great as long as you believe them and you've got the faith behind them. So that's really the way I look at these things. And it's not just the sight of the cross. It's what the person has inside them. And if I could also just briefly chime in on Dark Shadows, I had a time quite a while ago where I had a lot of time on my hands, and I decided I was going to watch Dark Shadows. I hadn't seen it, just a couple episodes here or there on the Sci-Fi Channel. And it took me two years, but I watched the entire run of the show, from episode one to the very end. And if you want a starting off point, a lot of people, probably most people, begin around episode 212, 214, that's when Barnabas arrives. The show really does change after that. But if you do that, you're going to miss out on some fairly important elements and plot points from the early episodes that come back later on. Characters on this show, they leave, they come back, they leave, they come back, you think they're gone, and then they're there again. So certain things that happen in the original 200 episodes before Barnabas do become important later on. So it's not totally necessary, but you should at least be aware of that. I should also warn you, though, that for at least the first 100, 120 episodes, the show's kind of boring. It picks up a lot later on. And lastly, I'm also a huge fan of Doctor Who, so I've got a lot of credibility here between Hammer, Dark Shadows, and Doctor Who. You can definitely, as was suggested, start with the reboot when Eccleston joined, because the new series pretty much goes on from there. It references original Who quite a bit. But you can always just go back and watch and fill in the gaps later on. Eccleson is a great place to start. That's it. I've covered a lot on this one, and I know I've talked fast. Guys, I love the show. Keep it up, and I can't wait for next week. So I guess that means uh, if we threw pictures at Peter Cushing at vampires, we'd be okay. That's right. That's, that's, that's what, what we, we believe, believe in. in. <laughs> in Peter, we trust. <laughs> that's right. You know, I go back and forth on it. I mean, I like the idea that, you know, it's the faith, you know, and it makes it even more mystical. And, you know, as Casey was talking about last time, it's about the symbol. But I also still like the non-traditional crosses. I, I go back and forth on it. I like it both ways. I like it all. Well, I, I go back to my argument that a windmill would not make a cross. It would make a plus sign. <laughs> so if Peter Cushing had faith in mathematics, then... I could yes, that's that's how that movie works. That's right. <laughs> uh, so we don't have our resident Doctor Who fan on the show, but I think he's told us as well. Casey said as well, go to to Eccleston for Doctor Who stuff. In Dark Shadows, man, if I had more time, I would go take a look at it all. At it all. That's that's what's holding me back. As I know that you know, if I like it, then I'm going to want to watch the whole thing. And just when do I have the time? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure I could find time to do it, but, you know, we've got all these other things that we got to do, like produce a show. That's right. And you, and you know what would happen if we, started, if we both started watching Dark Shadows? We'd start a podcast about it. Yeah, and our wives would be so happy. <laughs> <laughs> Although, now that you say that out loud, you know what we should... I'm just... No, I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. So uh, we also had some comments about brides from Victor Von Psychotron. Hello. This is Nick Havert, also known as Victor Von Psychotron, calling. I've enjoyed the last couple podcasts. I actually listened to the podcast for the episode on, I believe it was Hell of a City. Yes, I listened to that while on a beach in Aruba. So thanks for coming along to Aruba with me. Calling about Brides of Dracula, I like this movie quite a bit because Cushing is so awesome in it. Uh, Scott, you were right in that you did see this at the B-Movie Celebration in Franklin, Indiana. It was played at the drive-in the first year that the B-Movie Celebration had the drive-in theater. It was supposed to be Horror of Dracula, but I don't know why they swapped it out for Brides of Dracula, which was great to see on the drive-in screen. So if you're at the drive-in that night, when they also showed the original Gone in 60 Seconds and the original Crazies, Brides of Dracula was the final film. And I also want to mention that you talked about the early version of the script in which Van Helsing was going to use black magic to smite the vampires. That was reused in 1963's Kiss of the Vampire, in which the hero in that, who is this Van Helsing-like guy, he's a recluse, he uses black magic in the end to summon vampire bats to kill the vampires. Uh, it was an interesting premise when I first saw it, because I thought, oh, that's kind of an interesting twist, using black magic to kill the undead. I thought, well, that's something I hadn't seen before. Uh, and it, Kiss of the Vampire is an okay movie. Uh, it's not my favorite Hammer Vampire movie. But it is fun, and it uh, has, has cool old car in it. Uh, the other thing I want to mention was this whole thing about the shadow of the cross and the holy water and Van Helsing being seemingly superhuman. Or, as uh, as Derek put, him, put it, he's Van motherfucking Helsing. And I want a shirt that says that. <laughs> That's all I wanted to say. So, anyway... A common theme with this movie and Horror of Dracula is the power of Christianity versus the power of evil. And Terrence Fisher, if I remember right, had strong Christian beliefs, and that's why he pushed so much that the monsters in these films, especially the Dracula films, were cults. They were this thing of evil, this culture of evil. And that Van Helsing's faith is the power that helps him defeat these vampires. It gives him the power to make the cross out of the candlesticks and to make the cross out of the windmill in his faith, and let alone heal himself with the holy water. So that is what gives him that. Uh, in terms of a fan choice, I'm going to vote for Paranoiac, which, oddly enough, was double-billed with Kiss of the Vampire, but it's a great camera thriller with Oliver Reed just chewing the scenery through the whole thing. It's one of his, my favorite Oliver Reed roles. So thanks very much, and thanks for supporting Weirdorama. I'm up to 13 episodes working on episode 14, which is going to feature the movie Fire Monsters Against the Son of Hercules. Take care. Ciao. That's right. He's Van motherfucking Helsing. And uh, Victor Von Cyclotron, next time you're in Aruba, to make it even better, you want a live 1951 down place recorded there in front of you. 
So yeah. you, you need to invite all of us along. Yeah, at least us two. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and exactly. we'll do a live episode right there for you. We would even be willing to revisit Paranoiac with you live. I mean, I know we covered it a year ago, last March. Yep. But I would do it live for you, man. For you. I'd do it for you. Hey, I'd love to cover another Oliver Reed film. Why not? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, uh, the, the Shadow of the Cross, the, the Faith. I'm not – it makes sense to me that Terrence Fisher – would work those elements in. And even if it wasn't about his faith as a Christian, Terrence Fisher always approached these movies as if they were fairy tales for grownups. And there is a very fairy tale like quality to his Dracula films. You get a little bit of that in the Frankenstein films as well, but there is this kind of grown up fairy tale approach to some of these movies. So I could see that working its way in. And thanks for confirming um, where I saw Brides of uh, Dracula. That was, I remember that night at the B-Movie cast, saw the uh, original uh, Gone in 60 Seconds, the original George Romero, The Crazies, and uh, Brides of Dracula on a drive-in screen. That was uh, where I saw it as well. So that was yeah. a fun night. Exactly. So we want to make sure there's a link in the show notes to Weirdorama. It's a YouTube channel. Go look up Victor Von Psychotron on YouTube or go to 1951 Downplace and check out the show notes to, to get to his series there. And, you know, we didn't mention it last time. I'm well, sorry. Go ahead. I want to say one more thing about that, that show. I show up on the EGA episode just real quick as he interviewed me at a Horror Hound. Yes. Yes. And we didn't mention this before. Barry, who called in a second ago. He's got his own website, so make sure you go to his website as well. Again, link in the show notes to that. And to reiterate, that was bmj2k.com. All right, let's get to our most recent movie, 10 Seconds to Hell. We heard from Rod from the Nashi cast. Hey, guys, it's Rod from the Nashi cast and the bloody pit of Rod. Sending in some more voicemail and probably going to inundate you with voicemails. And Listen, guys, uh, loved the most recent uh, love the most recent podcast, uh, Love it when I get introduced to a film that I did not know before, and I did not know this film before, and I want to thank all of you for telling me about 10 Seconds to Hell, and especially telling me that Turner Classic Movies was going to show it a few months back so that I could have the DVR grab it, and I really, really enjoyed this movie. It's a Robert Aldrich film that I had not caught yet, and that is something that I always want to do. Now... Uh, Casey, I'm a little disappointed. You found this one, you found it kind of flat? That's, I, I, I can't agree. This is, uh, it was more drama than war film, and if you'd gone in expecting some kind of World War II thing or an action movie, this was not really going to be something that pleased you. Uh, I really like this, though. Uh, I, I really love period dramas, and, uh, especially if they're well done, and I gotta say, I really did like this one. Learning from you guys that this movie is missing... 30 minutes does make sense because I thought as soon as the film began with that voiceover introducing us to all the characters, man, they've obviously chopped something off the beginning of this movie. In other words, what they chopped was at least several minutes setting up and, and showing and introducing all these characters to us through their actions and through some dialogue between them that uh, they just decided, okay, we can shorten the film by doing this and let's do a cheesy ass voiceover and, go. So obviously I would I would bet money that a big chunk of what was cut out of this movie was right at the beginning giving us some introductions to these characters and kind of showing us what they're like through their actions. And that is a shame. 
I think there's probably some missing stuff kind of throughout the film. Just a few things here and there that would have probably fleshed out some of the characters. And I base that on the fact that this is a screenplay that's very careful about delineating these characters once they're in a scene and once they're talking to each other. Uh, none of the dialogue in, in any of those scenes could ever really be voiced by another character in the scene. And I think that's uh, that's a hallmark of a really well-written screenplay. And it's a shame to know that we'll probably never see a full-length cut of this film. Knowing that 30 minutes were cut out of it, that's a that's a disappointment. And that goes up in my uh, my list of films that I wish, in a perfect world, we had the original version of. Ah, well. Yeah, the uh, I'm fascinated by the period right after World War II uh, in general, just because... It was such an odd period, especially in Europe, where most of the landscape, most of the big cities were devastated, and people were having to pick up the pieces, and it took decades. There are areas where they're still trying to get certain things rebuilt and replaced, even decades later. We're talking 60, 70 years later. It's kind of amazing. The... uh Dialogue in this movie is fantastic. I love all the scenes where people are talking to each other. I think they're fascinating. Uh, and and you guys are right to talk about the acting in this movie. My lord. I mean, I expect really good performances uh, from Jack Palance. He's just always really, really good. And no, I'm not sure which way to pronounce his name, Palance or Palance. I'd pronounce it both ways depending on what's going through my head. But the other actors in the film are just as amazing. I was really shocked and surprised by these actors who I did not really know at all, and they were all good. There were a couple of char smaller character actors that I knew from uh, other British films. But geez, what a good, f what what a lot of good acting. If the film had nothing else going for it, the dialogue and the acting are top notch. And uh, Jack Palance, I I he's an absolutely amazing actor, and this was not the first time he had worked with um, uh, Robert Aldrich. By the way, uh, they worked together in one of I think Palance's best performances from 1955, a film called The Big Knife. Uh, if you've never seen The Big Knife, let me highly recommend that you do. It's a, it, like I say, it's a Robert Aldrich film. Jack Palance is the main character. He plays a uh, a very successful Hollywood actor, a Hollywood movie star, really, who uh, let's just say whose life is a little complex and. Uh, Honestly, you, you could you could spend a lot of time just going through Jack Palance's early films and really really having a good time. There's so many good movies there that it's it's uh, you can see Attack. There's of course his classic role in Shane as the bad guy. Just really good stuff. But if you haven't seen The Big Knife, see it. Um, this is kind of a thinking man's film in my opinion. Uh, very much a film that uh, allows you to observe. And make your own decisions about what you're seeing. It doesn't underline things. It doesn't draw heavy-duty attention to certain things. There's a certain amount of subtlety that I think is really effective. I think this is a really good movie. And it's a, it's a, it's now... Um, it's, it's lesser Robert Aldrich, considering the number of really, really good movies that he did. But... Uh, this is this is a fine film. I understand his disappointment with it, but as a film goer coming to it for the first time in 2013, I think it's a damn fine movie. Uh, and the thing is, I know that it was a Hammer-produced film, but it really doesn't feel like a Hammer film. It really does feel more like a Robert Aldrich film. And uh, 
there's nothing wrong with that, and I'm glad you guys are covering it because let's tell you, let's be blunt, people. No one else but you guys are covering this movie in a podcast. Find me somebody else. Is there a podcast out there that covers uh, black and white films set in post-war Europe during? I no, no, there isn't. Guys, you continue to do fantastic work. I want to thank you for getting the podcast out there every month. And thank you once again for introducing me to this movie, 10 Seconds to Hell. Uh. Well, definitely uh, Casey is going to be happy to hear that uh, voicemail because uh, 10 Seconds to Hell was his uh, choice for last month's episode. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're a big Robert Aldrich fan yourself, right? Oh, I love The Dirty Dozen and um, was really excited when I heard that uh, he had done 10 Seconds to Hell because I had not seen it before we recorded for the show. And I, too, am glad that we covered it because it's going to be uh, a movie that I'm sure I'm going to watch again. I uh, was glad to discover it through the podcast and uh, glad that uh, Rob, uh, or glad that uh, Rod is happy that uh, we saw it as well. And uh, another movie that uh, can he can watch over again. Yeah, definitely. And now I'm really curious about this big knife. Uh, have you seen the big knife? I have not, but now I want to. You know, I'm looking it up on the IMDb right now. It's got Jack Palance again. Uh, Charles Castle is a successful Hollywood actor who has opted for screen success over art. Okay, I'm on board. 50s Hollywood, <laughs> I'm there. Yeah, I, I definitely want to track that one down now. Yeah. yeah, that sounds good. I'll check that one out too. Uh, but yeah, 10 seconds to hell. I'm, I agree. It doesn't it, feel like a Hammer film at all. And it's definitely a movie that... Personally, I don't think I would have ever watched if it wasn't for this podcast. Aww. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we watched it as well. Yeah, definitely. Good stuff. Well, uh, you know, we didn't get any uh, emails, did we? No. Okay, but I do want to give a shout out to the Classic Horror Film Board. I want to mention them real quick. I went over there, uh, was it last month or so? I just... Yeah, I put a post out. Hey, anybody listening? What do you guys think? Any thoughts? What do you like? What don't you like? And I just want to give a shout out to uh, M. Harrison 56, Mac X of the Mounted Skeleton Nags, Hell Renar, uh, and I think that was it. Oh, and Hamicus uh, also listens to the show and gave us some input and I feedback. I like that username. Hamicus? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so just a shout out to them. And you know, something else that uh, Mac X of the Mountain mentioned over at the horror film board, the classic horror film board, just when he, he was talking about our uh, Prince of Darkness episode, number, episode 11. Do you have what it takes to do a show on any of Hammer's Buses trilogy? He asked. At some point, we will. Is that their comedies? Yeah, on the buses. It's a, there's a series of them. It's got some real catchy music. <laughs> we'll cover them at some point, I'm sure. So uh, thank you for listening, and if anybody wants to uh, head over to that message board, just go look up a Classic Horror Film Board, and it'll take you straight there. They're also the message board that hosts the Rondo Awards, so you can find out more about them over there and sign up. And I try to post things about the show whenever we do a new episode over there. I don't know if I have over the past couple of months, but uh, I try to anyway, and it's, it's some great discussion there. Really good community. So I'm going to have to check them out. But if you want to talk to us directly, how do people do that? They can call us at area code 765-203-1951 and leave us some feedback. Or you can email us at podcast at 1951downplace.com. We also have a uh, Facebook page and a Twitter account. 
coming up next month, we are getting back to Frankenstein. Speaking of Frankenstein, to my number two pick, The Revenge of Frankenstein by Terrence Fisher and starring my man, Peter Cushing. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, in May, right now we have scheduled uh, The Men of Sherwood Forest, but that may change. Yeah, I think... We're going to have some scheduling issues, so we may figure something else out. Uh, stay tuned. We'll keep you posted either through the podcast or our Facebook page or the website itself. So, And then um, after that, in June, we have The Mummy, and then July is our listener pick month. Right. So over on Facebook is the poll for listener pick month, and I think... <sighs> Four-sided <laughs> triangle. Yeah, I think they're the ones that are uh, – <laughs> that one's the one in the lead. But if you haven't voted in the poll yet – oh, wait a minute. No, it's not. What? Hold on. It's tied. With what? Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires as of this recording. Wow, that one I have seen. <laughs> I saw that one at um, at a B-movie cast uh, – excuse me, at a B-movie festival on the big screen, an actual print of the film. Wow. All right, so now it is very important that people go vote because if there's a tie, we'll just have to end the show. I think we'll just have to quit. What do no, you think? No, no. I'm doing, I'm doing uh, The Seven Deadly Vampires. <laughs> the Seven Deadly Vampires? Whatever. The Legend of the Seven... Le- yes. Whatever. I'm, <laughs> whatever. Whatever. I'm doing that one if I had to do it all by myself. <laughs> so get on over there. Uh, the poll closes on May 15th. My anniversary. <laughs> It is. (laughs) What wasn't by design? Oh, well. Anyway. (laughs) Anything else? (laughs) You sidelined me, man. I would definitely recommend tracking down Greater Mass 2. I think it's well worth the hunt. Go see this film. I'm not going to say what Vince normally says. But it should be. <laughs> it is one for your collection. Pretty much it, right? That's not a jig. I'll show you what a jig looks like.